Okay, here. Uh, and it's really good to be with you. Thank you for being part of us. We, uh, we have a number of values here. We see them on this board here. Get connected, get involved, get giving, get out. We want to make a difference in the world in which we serve. One of our values is that, uh, quite a high value, is that, uh, and it, it's slightly perverse, it may be topsy-turvy, it may make no sense to you. I don't know where you, you're coming from on this, but we believe that in this uh, book, this collection of books, the Bible, Scripture, inspired writing, God breathed. We believe that as we read and work at interpreting Scripture, God speaks to us. He feeds us. He shapes us. He corrects us. Uh, he leads us in the ways in which he's designed for us to live. So uh, I'm going to read a little, piece of, um, a little piece of Scripture. This is part of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We're doing a series on his teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're at uh, verse 27 of chapter 5. I'm just going to read this paragraph under the heading, Adultery. Oh, fun. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Short word of prayer. Father, simply that you would speak to us tonight as we tuck into Jesus' teaching, as we get beneath the surface, as he speaks to us by your spirit through your word. And speak to our hearts, we pray. And bring healing. Bring wholeness. Bring transformation, significance, power, authority from the inside out, Lord, that we live authentic lives Lives that are free. Lives that are fulfilled. That those who don't yet know you would see. And would come into living, freeing relationship with you. We pray this as we feed on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Teaching, he's come not to abolish the law, he says in verse 17, but to fulfill it. He uh, ends this uh, series of teaching at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel with this illustration of two types of people. They both build houses, they're like their lives. But one is built on the foundation of sand and it crumbles away when the storms come. The other is built on rock and when the storms come, not if, by the way, when, when testing comes, when tribulation, when trial, when we're under pressure, what is the beautiful veneer of our lives, the images that we present, what, what is it founded on? That's what Jesus is getting at with the Sermon on the Mount. What's the basis? Jesus speaking to the heart. He's not wanting to nitpick the law. He's wanting to establish harmony between the desire of the human heart and the design of the Creator. Aligned. And so he says to this particular law, you've heard it said, 
You should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's radical teaching in his day to those people. He cuts through several layers. It's radical because um, in Jesus' time, and you can kind of cross-check this with uh, the account in John 8 of the woman who is brought before Jesus because she's been caught in adultery. And uh, the accusers say, Jesus, look, this woman was caught in adultery. And the, the law says that she should be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus here teaching is, is challenging because uh, in his day, typically, they applied the laws on adultery, which was punishable by death, by stoning. But they tended to apply it to the women, not to the men. Hence, John 8, they bring the woman caught in adultery. Who's missing? Where's the man in that scenario? It takes two to commit adultery. But he's not there. Kind of men kind of exonerated themselves from that particular law whilst it was applied to the women. But Jesus here is clearly teaching to, if at the very least, a mixed audience. But as we read in the start of chapter 5, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up to the mountainside and his disciples came to him. We know there were men amongst his disciples. He's teaching men. And at the very least, even if there's a mixed audience here, he's applying this teaching to men, not to women. You've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if anyone looks on a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's applying this teaching to men. Now, that's a bit of a shrug for us in the 21st century, but that's pretty revolutionary in Jesus' day. He's wanting just to pull back the kind of the, the, the curtains, pull back the screens, peel off the masks. Let's get to the heart of this, guys. What's really going on? He's saying it's more than the physical act of adultery. He's saying if you've even just looked lustfully, in effect, you have committed adultery already in your heart. You've already broken the law. Just to look lustfully. And then to back it up, verse 29, verse 30, if you're 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Literally, the commentators say, no, he didn't mean that literally. He's wanting to shock us to acknowledge that it, it isn't actually the eyes that cause the sin. It's not actually the hand that causes the sin. They're just instruments, vehicles for the sin. It's about the heart. Even a blind man is capable of lusting. It's not to do with the eyes. It's not to do with the hands. It's not to do with the externals. To reference that illustration at the end of chapter 7, it doesn't matter how wonderful the house is. What's the foundation? Jesus is speaking to the heart. He's challenging the heart. I tell you, if anyone looks on a woman lustfully. The word lustfully there is the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia. And uh, the commentators tell us that a kind of amplified translation of that word would be to intentionally objectify for self-gratification. To intentionally objectify for self-gratification. If anyone looks on a woman and objectifies her, for one's own pleasure. It's as if you have committed adultery in your heart. 
interesting, just to note, and I think this is a key point. Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with looking at a woman or for a woman to look at a man or for any of us to look at something beautiful in creation. Wonderfully, we have been made with the ability to appreciate beauty in the other. We have been made with what uh, the, the, one of the Greek words, there are kind of four Greek words for love. Our, our word love is, is, is it's so wide in its application that it becomes almost meaningless at times. I love apple pie, and I love Joe, my wife. Unfortunately, the Greek has different categories for different kinds of love. There's storge. That's, that's familial love. It's a kind of mother's love for her child. There's filio, which is friendship love. I guess there's a lot of filio in the room. It's kind of people we get along with and, and like. There's eros. Eros is that passionate desire. It's a good thing. It's God-given. It's created. It's part of who we are. There's agape. Uh, often referred to exclusively, really, in the New Testament for God's love for us in Christ. It's self-giving love. We're called to agape. We probably find that kind of love the most challenging. We'd recognize the other three. But eros is in there. Passionate desire. The ability to eschew beauty. Jesus is not saying, don't look at a woman. It's the lustfully bit that he's getting at. Just, I want to get on to the epithemia, but, but just, just to make my point, because the church doesn't often talk about that, and please forgive me, we probably don't talk about this enough as a, a church. We're, we're quiet, we're, we're a little bit awkward maybe on this whole area of, of eros. But do you know what the first thing Adam said? The first thing that man created in God's image, the first thing that he said Again, the Hebrew doesn't really bring it out, but it's something like, yes! In Genesis 2, verse sort of 18-ish. I don't know if we... Oh, here we go. Uh, well, look, actually, let's go back one. Sorry, the, the Lord, right at the top. This is 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story. So... God has done all this amazing creating. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates Adam. It's very good. He said, oh, hang on. It's not good for Adam to be alone, to know that ache of, of kind of uh, just a lack of, of intimacy, of all the loves mixed in together, of that storge, filio, eros, agape, all mixed in. It's not good for man not to know what that feels like. I'll make a helper. And so God said, look, I've made all these amazing animals. See if any of these kind of connect and resonate. You know, you could maybe get a, a thing going. And, and Adam is kind of, he's given the right and responsibility to name the animals. And so, you know, so, yeah, elephant, no. Giraffe, no. Tiger, lion. I don't know what that is, but no. And so just all the, no, 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 mm, no. Too prickly, no. Nothing. And you can kind of feel the kind of empty, the ache and the emptiness in Adam. This beautiful creation, just the, the, whole, the wonder of the world. And Adam, there's something in Adam that is just lonely. And God causes him to sleep, takes a rib out of Adam and creates Eve, a woman. And it's when, have we got this in here? Yeah, then the, it's sort of two-thirds of the way down. Then the man said, 
it doesn't really come across in the English. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's a love song. That's, I've seen all these amazing creatures, all these amazing animals. They don't do it for me. Ah, oh, but she does. Oh, yes. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Come on. I, I know it's lost in the English, but it's there. This is, this is Adam reflecting back to his creator. Yes, thank you, God. Thank you, God. There's nothing wrong with eschewing beauty. There's nothing wrong with a man looking at a beautiful woman or a woman looking at a beautiful man. There's nothing wrong with human beings looking at the beauty of creation and going, yes, how wonderful. How literally wonderful. What beauty. What perfection. Yes, yes. There's a beautiful phrase, is it there? Yeah, look, right at the end. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I say to you the word lust. Shame. The man and the woman, they are naked and they felt no shame. This is before the fall. This is when Eros, fully inflamed, there is a man looking at a naked woman. There is a woman looking at a naked man. Eros is at play. But agape, that self-giving love of God to create life in Adam and to create life in Eve and made in God's image for Adam and Eve to live for the other. Agape, self-giving love. Eros and agape together means that you can look at a naked body and see through the body to the soul. You can see who they truly are in God. And when you can see even in physical nakedness to the soul, soul nakedness, that's what it is. To feel no shame. Beautiful. Beautiful. But epithumia enters in chapter 3. Intentional objectification for self-gratification. So the serpent tempts Eve and Adam was there. He's complicit too. Hey, look at that fruit. Wouldn't that be good for you? And even though God in his wisdom says, no, that wouldn't be good. They think, well, I want, so they take the object and they eat it for their own gratification. An agape which was breathed into them seeps out, and you're left with the empty shell of eros. That's what lust is. Lust is, is the empty, dissatisfying shell of eros devoid of agape and when the lord god next appears in the garden they hide because they feel shame that's the pattern set out in the first few chapters of scripture that's the pattern the ideal is that we would rejoice in one another we would love one another we would Delight in looking at one another and saying, that is beautiful. He is beautiful. She is beautiful. Because agape thrusts us to give all the ultimate worship, delight, the honor to him who made the beauty in the first place. 
Jesus isn't so much concerned with laws on adultery. I mean, he is, but it's not his primary concern. He's concerned about the heart and where the heart has got twisted and gone wrong. He's pointing it out. He's convicting his hearers then as he's convicting me, you, us, now, with how our hearts and our loves have become disordered. There's nothing wrong with looking at someone who's beautiful. Jesus is talking about the second look with the wrong motive. That's the epithemia. Eros turned in on itself becomes epithemia, lust. And lust, when it has full play, reveals the dark and subversive secrets of our hearts. We see and feel, we know what it is to feel that, that disordered power at work. Pornography. You, you hate that. We hate that. Why? We indulge, we fall, we slip, every single one of us in one way, shape or form. And yet we hate ourselves for it. Why? Because God made us for beauty. He made us for truth. And porn lies to us. Porn demeans, it degrades, it says, here, have eros. That will satisfy you. But eros without agape just, le agape just leaves us empty. And we fall for the promise. We think, oh yeah. And, and something in us sparks and comes alive but fizzles and goes out. And, and I feel the emptiness all the more. And in that emptiness, if I don't recognize what's going on, a disordered heart, then I'll go for more because the hunger and the gap is there. And that's how addiction started. It could be with sex, it could be with drink, it could be with oh, any manner of things. It's when I think that a good thing will become for me a God thing. When I make a, an icon, if you like, into an idol and I serve it and instead of being free, I become enslaved. Pornography de deceives us because it encourages us to intentionally objectify for self-gratification. And that will never satisfy. Epithemia. Jesus knows. It is with a broken heart, he says this to his hearers. Now it's with a broken heart. He, he speaks to us today by his spirit. Because he knows, he was there at creation. He, he was there when we were made and formed. He knows what we could be. And he sees what sin has done. Sin, the difference between what we could have been and what we actually are. And it breaks Jesus' heart. As he sees epithemia, that's what he wants to address, the challenge in each of us. Lust, which which encourages us to see a body as something rather than someone. It objectifies, depersonalizes. Whereas love is, is, is in essence self-giving so that it makes another person feel treasured. Lust is, is self-gratifying so it makes another person feel toyed with. 
in her book, Deborah Hirsch uh, has written Redeeming Sex. Uh, I haven't read the whole of it, but I'm uh, halfway through, and um, I thoroughly recommend, well, the half I've read anyway. I've got no reason to think the rest won't be just as good. She talks about, a, she counsels, she's a, a church pastor, she's um, just worked with a lot of people in the uh, LGBT uh, uh, networks, as well as people with sex addictions, and uh, she's well um, founded to, to write this book. And she talks about a, a guy called Justin, who would, um, he was just highly addicted to uh, a gay lifestyle, and to, um, to practicing in that whole area. Uh, sometimes two or three times a day, he'd look for a hit in various sort of uh, places to go. And she describes how he came to her and told her about a time when uh, he was in a gent's toilet looking for uh, his next sexual hit. And uh, this guy is there who, to whom he's attracted. And to signal the fact that he's attracted to him, he, he kind of holds out his hands. And this guy reciprocates and holds out his hands and holds this guy Justin's hands. And as he does so, he looks into his eyes. And they just stand there. Justin says he's transfixed by the look of this guy as he looks into his eyes. And after a while, to Justin seemed like an eternity, the guy just loosely lets go of his hands and walks off. And as he goes, Justin described to Deborah Hirsch how he began to shake. And he shaked with a deep, deep recognition that actually raw sex was not what he wanted. Because in that moment, he felt loved. He felt appreciated. He felt valued. And that was what he wanted. That was what he needed. Intimacy over and above pure sex, raw sex. Agape and eros, not just eros. And Jesus has come to restore that core belief, that desire, that intention in us to go for all of the loves. But in this particular context, eros and agape together. They're like, they're like sort of the, the rocket and the fuel that propel us out of this earth towards heaven. That, that propel us to God. Christopher West, just this other book, I, I so recommend this book. Christopher West is a Catholic theologian. He's written this book called Fill These Hearts, God, Sex, and the Universal Longing. The subtitle kind of gives you a clue. It's, this is one of the best books I've read on the whole area of, of uh, a kind of Christian engagement with sex and sexuality. Christopher West, Fill These Hearts, I thoroughly recommend it. He talks about eros placed in us by God as a longing for the infinite. And, and as, we, as we acquaint ourselves with what God has placed in us, this, it, this desire for the infinite, we recognize that sex, which is brilliant, won't satisfy. Sex, which is so good, eros, completely and, and wonderfully and appropriately fulfilled, is so good, and yet it's not the ultimate thing that we're made to experience. We are called to be in a relationship with God. And that, that eternal relationship, the whole of eternity, the, the, the ultimate reality of all God is, released, detonated in us, is what we are called to live in and experience now. And Jesus knows that. He wants, 
He wants, in this teaching, as he kind of convicts us, to release his desire in us so that we would desire him and put all other priorities, temptations, clarion calls into some kind of perspective. That's why Jesus says earlier on, chapter 5, verse 17, I don't think I've come to abolish the law. As he said, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it. But I say, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to amplify the law. What you see in sort of tablets of stone or written down in small print, I just want it to live. I want you to live, he says. I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His, his desire for each and every one of us is that we should be so full of God that actually we don't, in one sense, we don't need the law. We, we're, so, we're so tuned into God. We're so full of him. Storge and Filio and Eros and Agape, they are so in perfect order in us that we, we don't need these, these constraints it's a bit like, you know, I'm, if I drive so well, I don't need the highway code in one sense. The highway code is there to help me to know how to drive well. Well, let me put it another way. Let's take one of the commandments, do not murder. Do not murder. Now, with respect to my relationship with my wife, Jo, do I need that law? Oh, you're really silent. Can I just assure you, I don't need that law. <laughs> I love my wife. That didn't go as planned, did it? <laughs> Look, no, Tim, you don't need that law. And they're all thinking, maybe he does. Mm. <laughs> if someone comes and mugs my wife, if someone comes and violates my wife, yes, then I need the law, because I'm going to feel very angry about the guy who's, who's violated someone I love. So we, haven't, we don't abolish the law, but with respect to my particular age, do I need, do I need to wake up and say, oh, don't forget, don't murder Joe. <laughs> it's the law. I don't need that law because it, as I live out my relationship with her, it's, it's kind of fulfilled. And as with that aspect, so with all the Lord, Jesus hasn't come to abolish it. We, we kind of need it there. But his vision is that our lives would fulfill it. That our, our temptation to lust, to epithumia, would be so sublimated by the other loves for God that it, it kind of drifts away. I find myself so full with a desire and a longing for God himself. It orders all my other loves. Does this make sense? Supplemented means, um, Pat's just said, what does supplemented mean? I think it means, did I just make that word up? I think it means when when something is there and then it just it, it gets overwhelmed by everything else so it, it doesn't it's not there in the same way is that the right word does that make sense let's make it a word we declare now that is sublimated is a word let's move on do you get you do you get don't know the word you get what i mean it's just it's just i'm so john i tell you what it is john piper in his book future hope and he, it's a phrase I know I've quoted before. I love this phrase. He talks about the expulsive power of a higher affection. Maybe I should have said that, sorry. Forget the supplemented bit. It's the, when we focus on God, he becomes the expulsive power of a higher affection. I, why would I want to lust? 
when I can love perfectly? Okay, look, the practical stuff. Um, <laughs> How, what do I do? What do I do now? How do I live now? Come on, Tim, be real. It's all around us. Uh, I've read in some of the research, uh, it's estimated there are 14,000 references to sex on television per year alone. I, I, I thought that, that sounds incredibly low. I bet it's even more than that. And that's just television. Never mind the pop-ups. Never mind all the stuff on the screen, the adverts. Everything. We are bombarded by an alternative message. What, how do we live in this culture? How do we live in a world that is so sex-saturated, so eros-overwhelming? How do, I, how do I deal with epithemia, the temptation, the call, the promise to, to objectify for my own gratification? Uh, again, I love it. He's got a brilliant analogy in this book. Um, because he talks about something that every single one of us has, which is um, an appetite. We all, we all get hungry, right? We, we, all, we have just that basic appetite for food. And he, he basically says that, you, you know, the world in which we live has kind of offered one or two choices. The kind of, basically, the church choice is, well, just starve. With regard to sort of sex and eros. And I go, well, what do I do? Well, you know, we don't really sort of talk about it, so just uh, shh. And it's kind of a starvation diet. It's on the one option. Or the world says, Hugh Hefner set up Playboy in the 1960s. He said it was because to deal with the hurt and hypocrisy of his Puritan upbringing. It was a response to that. He says, no, sex is amazing. Sex, it's, just a, it's just an instinct. It's just a biological thing. If it feels good, do it. The only thing is just you know, don't abuse anyone else. Don't contravene someone else's values. But basically, two consenting, anyone, I guess, do it. Great. And uh, Christopher West calls that the fast food diet. Just, it, it's just available anywhere. Just quick. You place an order, there it is. Boom, straight. You don't have to wait. You don't have to cook. Fast food. Now, look, if, you, if you're hungry and you've got the option of starving or you've got the option of fast food, what are you going to take? Fast food. Of course you are. You're going to take fast food. You're going to even convince yourself that fast food is, a, oh, that's amazing. Look at that hamburger. Look at those chips. Man, whoa, great. You take a bite. Yeah, you can even sort of tell yourself, yeah, this feels really good. How are you doing about 45 minutes later? We're honest. But you still go, yeah, fast food, fast because I've got an appetite. I've got a hunger. It's there. I can't deny that. You give me starvation or fast food, I'll take fast food. But Christopher West says this. Give it two months' time. Both of them kill you. you, you see, the, I, and again, I'm so sorry. If I, insofar as I represent the church, forgive me that we, we probably don't talk about this enough. And the church is kind of often, what do I do with this eros that I can feel? <laughs> and the church is, mm. and so in the kind of silence, the shame, the guilt, we've not, we've not handled this well. People are starving. And because they're starving, they say, fast food, I'll grab anything. Just give me anything. And Christopher says, have you seen Super Size Me, the film? You know what happens if you just eat fast food. That guy nearly died. Both of those options eventually kill you. Christopher West says there's a third option. How is heaven described in the Bible? How does Jesus describe heaven on a number of occasions? A feast. A banquet. With the choicest of food and the finest of wine. 
John, in his gospel, he, he, he talks about these different, he gives these different signs, the different miracles are signs. He gives a signpost to who Jesus is. He says, guys, can you see who Jesus is? Do you know what the very first signpost is? John chapter 2, where is Jesus? He's at a wedding. What does he do? What happens? The water runs out, and Jesus, Jesus transforms washing ceremonial washing water into wine. It's the sign of what heaven's going to be like. You, here on earth, you kind of satisfy yourself and it runs out. In heaven, I will make you the choicest wine. Heaven is a feast. Heaven is a banquet. You, you do a word search on choice food or choice wine on, through the Bible. You'll see time and again the prophets, the psalmists, all the while. I will feed you, God says. I will feed you. I will supply your needs with the richest affair. I don't have to, I'm not called to starve, I'm not made to starve. But neither am I called to, to gorge on fast food. No, there's, there's abstinence in here somewhere as a discipline to help me to appreciate just how good the banquet is. And I can begin by the Spirit to taste the benefits of that banquet now. Yes, but how, Tim? How, in the white heat of the moment, when I'm under pressure, when I'm stressed, when I'm tired of my weak points and the temptations are there. I need a strategy. I, I need a strategy. I, I, I confess this the other day, just because I'm human like you are. I was, in, I was engaged in one of the most noble activities known to man. I was preparing a sermon. Uh, and I liked to go, I was in a cafe, and I kind of had a window seat, and I was looking out, it was a few weeks ago, uh, the weather was a little bit warmer, and I, this, I was, I was, I promise you, I had my Bible open, I was kind of thinking lofty thoughts, and a young lady walked by, and I kind of noticed she caught, she caught my peripheral vision, because she had a very sort of, quite a sort of bouncy walk, she sort of, so that, you know, most people sort of, you know, such a, uh, but I noticed that in, in, in keeping with her walk, um, she was wearing this very sort of light, the material of her skirt was very light, so it kind of, it also flounced around as she was walking. And just as she walked past me, a little gust of wind. <laughs> oh, you react to that one. <laughs> Lifted the hem of her skirt higher than I suspect she would have liked. And it was just a moment. It was like that I glimpsed. It didn't go that high, but high enough that suddenly I was ambushed. I, literally, just like that, I wasn't sitting there kind of thinking, oh, one of the nice women. I was, I was... <laughs> and she just, and suddenly, and there I am, and suddenly my mind is racing on 101 fantasies. Suddenly my mind is racing, and I'm there, oh my goodness, what's going on here? I'm kind of reeling with this. Ambushed by suddenly my, all my thoughts. So I, I've lost the whole thing. I'm just consumed with this. What's going on? I'm suddenly aware of the white heat of battle. What do I do? What do you do? What do we do? I'm not into martial arts, but I'm told that in martial arts, like jiu-jitsu, apparently there's a move where when you have an opponent that's coming at you, and he or she is maybe stronger than you, heavier than you, bigger than you, you can overcome a strong opponent. You, you don't have to cave in and, and be pinned to the floor. But the key thing is don't fight the opponent. 
If you take on the opponent, they're bigger than you, stronger than you, they'll probably win. But what you do is you use the energy and the momentum of the opponent and you redirect their energy to throw them. As they come to you, there's a sort of particular move, I don't know what it is, but you, you kind of, they come to you and you, you, you take their energy and you redirect it to throw them to the floor. You reroute the power. As I, as I kind of fought with this thing, the girl just gone past. What do I need to do? She's not a thing. She's a person. That's someone. Personalize her. She's someone's daughter. She's made in God's image. She could be a friend of my daughter or my wife. She's probably a poet or very generous. She's got a sense of humor. Personalize her. Don't objectify her. Did you see that? Objectifies her. Did I see her? Don't look at women. See them. See who God has made them to be. See, you've taken the power that's, that's tempting you to objectify and you're throwing it into personalization. This is a person. This is a woman. This is someone. Who, look how God has made those legs. Amazing! You throw it and redirect it and you're back into God. Now, I know that sounds a bit clunky and crude, but actually, what do you do in the white heat of battle? You've got to do something. Don't for epithem here. Don't intentionally objectify for self-gratification. Turn it back to God. There's nothing wrong with looking at a woman. Jesus is condemning looking at a woman lustfully. It's the second look for the wrong reason that Jesus wants to condemn. Learn scripture. Have it at hand. Have it have it there. Psalm 37 verse 4. I remember learning this as a teenager. I've needed it over and over again. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will grant you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will grant you the desires of your heart. Desires. You see, he's put them in there. He wants us to desire. So as we delight ourselves in the Lord, we will desire him. Counteracts all lust. I'm conscious I've talked about lust in terms of sex. But actually, you know, you leaf through a magazine and you can lust. I don't mean a pornographic, I mean a, a, like a, a homes and furnishing. And you think, oh, my home isn't, oh, look at that sofa, look at that, oh, I wish. And you long and you fantasize and you put your heart and you objectify these pages and images for self-gratification. It can be a trap for some people. I, if I'm honest, I, I've got, and I say this in front of my wife and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I've got all the climbing kit I need. And yet there I am on a Cotswold website going, oh, look at that rucksack. <laughs> and it's got a clip I haven't got on my other five rucksacks. Uh, and I think, well, I know I need that. Cause, uh, and I do all sorts of things I can taught. I go to Joe and Chelsea, you know, if you want me to be safe in the mountains, then I probably... <laughs> it's a form of epithumia. It's objectifying for self-gratification. But as I delight myself in the Lord, he grants me the desires of my heart. As I practice thinking of him, longing for him, loving him, then he grows those perfectly ordered desires in my heart. That's, that's, what, that's the kind of life Jesus 
wants us to live. I, I quoted a book earlier on. The title is The Good and Beautiful Life. I want to live that life. I love maybe on my gravestone even. He lived a good and beautiful life. Just fulfilled, satisfied with all that God had to give him. Is that the kind of life you want to live? Yeah. Yeah, as we look to overcome epithemia, as we look to be filled with God's love by his spirit, perfectly ordered to radiate his peace, love, joy, the fruit of his spirit to a world that is desperately starving, grabbing at fast food, we can live the banquet. Amen. Let's just be still for a moment. You know those beautiful words of Jesus to that woman that the men bought who'd been caught in adultery. Neither do I. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Go and live a well-ordered, well-loved life. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus' words to us. Neither do I condemn you. He's not come to make us guilty. He doesn't want us to live in shame. He longs for us to live pre-fall as Adam and Eve who could be naked to one another, soul naked, and feel no shame. How beautiful. That's the image that Jesus is looking to restore in each and every one of us. We're all on a journey. I'm on that journey. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus does not condemn any single one of us in this room this evening. The Spirit might be convicting. That's a beautiful and precious and altogether different thing. Maybe just pointing to one aspect, one little corner of your heart, your mind, to bring it into the light, to encourage Jesus to breathe his desire in your heart so that you would desire him more. Delight yourself in the Lord, in all that you know him to be, and he will grant you the desires of your heart. as we seek him, as we focus on him. Let's stand together. We're going to worship. I'm going to hand back to Pat and Catherine as they lead us. Let's respond to God in praise and worship and thanks.